Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our West Conway campus. Thanks for listening. Tell me if this has ever happened to you. I'm sure it has. That uh, somebody walks up to you, they tell you a story. Maybe it's a long story. And uh, you think to yourself when they're done with that story, what does that have to do with anything in the world, you know? Like, how does that possibly apply to my life? Why did you just tell me that story? Has that, has that ever happened to you? It, it happens a lot. If you are the parent of a young child, it'll happen a lot more. And they just tell you stuff. And you're like, uh, that's awesome, son, you know? That sort of situation is what happened to me this last Monday when I read this chapter. I read this and I thought to myself, what does this have to do with anything? How, furthermore, not only what does it mean, but how am I supposed to stand up and explain this to people in a way that matters to their lives? And what I found out was that not only does it matter, and it does, but it matters to us on a corporate level. That it may not make a huge difference, I think it will though, to you or me as an individual, but to us as a family, as a church, as a team, People who live within a community, go to a university, are a part of an organization or a corporation, this has very relevant application to our lives. So that's what we're going to study. Let me read the story to you, or I'll try to just kind of skim through it and summarize what's going on. It begins, like I said, in 2 Kings chapter 12, verse 4. It says, Then Joash said to the priest, All the dedicated silver brought to the Lord's temple, census silver, silver from vows, and all the silver voluntarily given for the Lord's temple. Each priest is to take it from the assessors to repair whatever damage is found in the temple. That's pretty much the setup of the story. Take the silver, repair the temple. But it says in verse 23, or verse 6, but by the 23rd year of the reign of the king Joash, the priest had not repaired the damage to the temple. It took a long time. And so what Joash does in six through eight is take the responsibility off of the priest and he sort of tackles it himself. In verse nine, it says, and then the priest Jehoiada took a chest, like a, think to your, like a, like a pirate's chest, right? He took a pirate's chest and he bored some holes in its lid and he set it beside the altar on the right side as one enters the Lord's temple. It goes on to explain that as people walked into the temple to make their sacrifices, they put silver in the hole in the chest and uh, as it was collected, it would grow. You know, there would be a lot of money in there. And so some people were responsible for accounting for it. They took it. They gave it to the people who were going to make the repairs in verse 13. However, no silver bowls, wicks, trimmers, sprinkling basins, trumpets, or any articles of gold or silver were made for the Lord's temple from that contribution. So they didn't take any money from the chest to buy the things that they needed to do ministry. Furthermore, in verse 16, it says, the silver from the guilt offerings and the sin offerings was not brought to the Lord's temple since it belonged to the priest. So in other words, what that says is not only did they not use the money in the chest to pay for ministry expenses, they did not use the money in the chest to pay for the ministers. There were other ways to take care of those things. That's the story. That's how it went. That's, uh, that, you know, and you, you walk away from that going, okay, yeah. All scripture is profitable for teaching, for rebuking. That's what First Timothy says, or Timothy says, and I'm looking at this going, but how? All right, that's what we're gonna study and we're gonna look at. I really do believe there are three themes that come out of that story right there 
that we could all apply to our lives in a way that we would change. Maybe we would even become more thankful for the things that we are often ungrateful for. Y'all ready? Let's pray together and then we will look at it. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for those who are gathered back together. God, those, uh, the college students, as they come back to university, God, we pray um, a prayer of gratitude. We're so thankful that you have placed us here in such a way that we have the privilege and the honor, God, to minister to them as they are away from home. God, I pray that they would find here a second home. God, we do thank you for any guest that chooses to worship with us this morning. We, we take it as an honor that you are entrusting with us the minds and souls of people. And we pray that they too would find a home here, a family, a second family. God, be with us today as we worship you. We, we open up our minds and our hearts. There are things that by default we take for granted. And so today, Lord, I pray that we would see these three things as good gifts from you, even though they don't at first appear to be. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. So it's a story about repairing the temple and how exactly they got the money to do that and how it was done. And by King's standards, it's not your uh, typical exciting story, right? All of these stories in Kings, they deal with blood and, and um, conquest surrounding a certain city. In fact, this is the first time in a little while that we are not going to have any leprosy in this story. There are no skin diseases in this story. It's a pretty basic story. They needed to make some repairs, they collected the money, they made the repairs, and everybody was happy. That's the end of the story, right? But if you're the kind of person that needs the blood and the guts and all that sort of stuff, let me just tell you this. Joash is the king in the story. He's seven years old when he takes the throne of Israel. He's seven because about seven years prior to that, this wicked lady had all of his family executed and the, the priest Jehoiada takes the infant, the, the, the bad lady does not know about the infant. He hides him in the temple complex and he stays there for seven years until Jehoiada makes him the king. A little bit later on after this story, if you were to read the rest of chapter 12, then some of Joash's servants rise up and kill him and put his son in charge. So if that's your sort of story, Joash's story begins with a coup, it ends with a coup. There's a lot of people dying, but in the middle, there's a home renovation, all right? And so let's look back at that home renovation. You know, life happens, right? In the middle, you know, everybody has coups and death and all that stuff, but in the middle, you gotta, you know, you gotta shiplap some things. So the first theme that arises from this story is there in verse three, right at the very beginning, it says that Joash said to the priest, right from the beginning, we have what we would consider to be authority and accountability. We have someone in charge. And in this case, it's really not hard to picture who's in charge. It's the king. And this is a young king. Like I said, he's seven when he begins his reign. And more than likely, that's about the time that he told the priest that they need to go ahead and start repairing the temple. But he seems to be a good king, a good leader in that he's not micromanaging the situation. He says, here's the goal. We need you to repair the temple. And then he literally steps away for 23 years, 23 years, he lets them sort of take a, a stab at this project. Anybody else have a project around their home that feels like it's taken 23 years um, to get done? You know, there's delays, there's all sorts of situations. If you're like me, you go to Home Depot 14 times in one day because you just cannot buy the right thing, you know? 
23 years really doesn't seem that out of character if you're going to repair the temple of the Lord, but that's what happens. He gives them 23 years and then he says, okay, you've had enough. You've had enough. He takes the project over to himself and he's going to rebuild this sort of situation. He has both authority and there is accountability in the story. The king is the authority and then he's the one holding them accountable. And as much as we fight it, here's what I have to tell you. And this is one of those things that just grates against us. It it grinds against our nerves. Authority and accountability are good things in our lives. It dawned on me this week that when you're young and you're growing up, you need somebody to tell you the difference between right and wrong. That's what authority does in our lives. It says, this is the right way to live. This is the wrong way to live. This is the right way to, uh, to behave. This is the wrong way to behave. This is how you use a fork. And this is how you do not use a fork, those sort of things. When we're growing up, we need that sort of authority. But as we mature and we become adults, the authority shifts less from telling us what is right and what is wrong to just holding us accountable. So that when we step out of line, there's somebody that steps in and says that that is not right. Authority and accountability are there for our flourishing and for our growth. One of the things that we really struggle with is as followers, when we're in the position of following, we often see that as a weakness. Our culture is obsessed with leadership. I mean, it is a massive industry. You can find all sorts of books and podcasts and and YouTube channels and, and leadership gurus that will tell you how to be a leader. And yet scripture runs contrary to that. You wanna really be countercultural, learn to be a great follower and worry less about being a great leader. That's what scripture teaches us. It always holds up those who are good followers. It is not a weakness. In fact, it is the strength of a team, of a community, of a civilization, of a church when the people submit themselves to uh, qualified biblical God-ordained authority in their lives. That is the strength of it. In fact, this temple does not, a small project. The temple repair does not happen until the people submit themselves to the authority and the accountability of the leader. If you do happen to find yourself in a leadership position, which I believe that most people at some point in their lives will find themselves leading a group, maybe a group of six, maybe somebody at work, a team at university or a staff or something like that, you're gonna lead an organization. I would encourage you to learn this lesson that Joash teaches us in this story. Sometimes, you're just gonna have to plow around. Sometimes you're just gonna have to plow around. I read this story and I'm amazed that it takes them 23 years to get anything done. It is a good project. Who's gonna argue with the repair of the Lord's temple? That everybody's on board with that, right? I mean like, okay, they have the money. The money is sitting there, so the funds are there. And apparently if you read on the rest of the story, they have the artisans. And so there's, there's workers, there's finances. It's a good vision. Here's another thing to really keep in mind. Jehoiada, the, the like chief priest, the guy in charge of the priest, the one who's supposed to be leading this project, he's the one that rescues Joash as an infant and hides him in the temple. So they have to have a good relationship, right? And yet they don't do what he says for 23 years. I'm telling you, sometimes in your leadership, sometimes when you're leading something, you're gonna have a great vision and the ability to do the vision. And there's just gonna be people that ain't gonna do it. And the lesson in leadership there is just plow around. He doesn't have them executed. He doesn't exile them. He doesn't kick them out of the temple. He just says, all right, 
we're going to do this ourselves. You can get on board if you want or not. It's a great leadership lesson there. But for us today, what we really need to pick up and walk alongside of us, what we need to wrestle with and really internalize is that authority and accountability are good gifts from God. That's the way that it's presented in this story. That's the way that it's presented throughout the whole Bible. And that's what God blesses. Authority, proper authority, and accountability to that authority. There's another theme that arises from this incredibly mundane, everyday little story. And it is systems and structure. It says there in verse nine that the priest, Jehoiada, makes a chest with a hole in it. It's a giving box. It's not unlike the black boxes that are by the back doors when you walk out of here. It's a box with a hole in it that the people were to put their donations in. All throughout this story, there are mentions and there are nods towards systems and structures. For example, in verse four, it says that Joash mentions the dedicated silver, the census silver, the silver from vows, voluntary silver given. It is a a systematic approach. I could explain what all those silvers mean, but essentially what it is, is that they had a system for the way that they did things. In nine through 10, it says that there were certain priests who guarded the, the chest, right? wouldn't let everybody come to the chest. You give your money, you're not allowed to touch the chest. But then there were different people who counted the money and yet other people who bagged the money and took it into the king's treasury. So there's a clear system that's going on in here. Like I mentioned in verse 16, there was a system to pay the ministers what they needed to make. There's system and structure all over this. Now, here's a confession. I am the kind of person that really enjoys systems and structure. I'm the kind of person that loves Excel spreadsheets. I love all the little formulas that you can put into Excel spreadsheets. I love uh, spreadsheets taking data from this spreadsheet and that spreadsheet and formulating it all together to spit out a, 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 a factor over here. You know, I love this sort of stuff. If you're talking about bylaws or constitutional amendments, I'm all there, all right? That's the kind of thing that I really, anybody else like that? Anybody at all? Okay, great. There's like five of us. Let's nerd unite, you know, that sort of thing. I love this stuff. I love systems and structure, but here's the deal. We often downplay that as sort of this like side issue for nerds to do, but I'm telling you, it is actually worship to understand and implement and dream up systems and structure. I'll explain it to you in a very systematic way, by the way. Have you ever thought about this? Have you ever thought or realized that God has given humans this ability that humans alone possess, this ability to within our minds, image a world that is not there. All right, that sounds really philosophical, but it's, you, you always do this. In fact, while you're listening, you are doing this. We have within our minds, the ability to what's called image a world that is not there. And some people use that ability to paint pictures or to write songs. Other people use the very same ability to foresee issues and then create systems that would mitigate those issues and that would protect those involved in the structure or in the, in the corporation or in the family. Both are using what we stopped using a long time ago or what we don't acknowledge that we use. It's called your imagination, your image nation, your imaging ability. That is a gift from God and to use it whichever way that you use it is worship to God. I hear 
some people sometimes tell me that they are fans of Jesus and yet they are not fans of what they call organized religion, right? And they'll kind of say it that way, organized religion. Like organized makes it bad. I like religion. I don't like organized religion is what they will say. Organized used in a a derogatory sort of way. And I've got to be honest with you, I can't relate to that at all. I love organized stuff, all right? I love all sorts of organized things. And in reality, I would say this, so do you. We all love organized things. Let me give you a very practical example. You might love clothing. Let's say you love clothing. Fashion is your passion, all right? That's just the way that you are. And you love accessorizing, all that sort of stuff. And you're like, all that organized stuff, I don't really like that. I really love to express myself and what I wear. But even you, uh, the fashionista that you are, do appreciate organization, right? You go to a store, uh, some brand store that you like, and it has some clothes there. And they're all, guess what? Organized by sizes and the pants are over here and and the shirts are over there and they're even sometimes organized by color so that you can match all of these things and then you'll go into the fitting room and then you'll try on some stuff and you'll leave some stuff and guess what there are people staff people that were scheduled by a structure to be there and to take those things and then go put them back in a certain spot or what we would call a system or a structured approach there are price tags on the things and even discounts and deals and Kohl's cash and all of that is structured and all of it is systematized we like system systems and structures do not impede your creativity or your expression or your beauty in fact you need the systems and structures in order for the wild beautiful thing to grow and to be this is the farmer's rose this is the cattle being moved from one field to another field. This is going into the arts and crafts store and all of the paint being organized by not only color, but shade of color and medium, the oils and the watercolors and on and on and on. That organization is what breeds beauty. It's through the organization that we see good and wholesome things. This is you go onto the car lot and there's sports cars and sedans and SUVs and trucks, full size, mid size and small and red with leather interior. All of it is organized. None of that impedes the way that you are. In fact, we need the systems and structures in order to be and to do what God called us to do. So if you should ever find yourself in which you are looking for a church, what I would have to offer to you is this, the Bible, God's communication to us actually does communicate a great deal about the way in which a church should be organized. Who should be the authorities in churches and how they should function and the way that the church should uh, uh, communicate and relate to one another. A lot of that is in the Bible. So if you're ever looking for a church, you need to find a church that reflects the systems and the structure that God gives us. Furthermore, I would say this, and I mean this, I hope you will hear me on this. If you are the person in your home, your family, or in your work, in your organization, in which you provide the systems and the structures to think, you're the one that keeps all the bills paid, you're the one that has all the files in the right order and all that sort of stuff, you are doing a godly thing, a worshipful thing. And you ought to see it. We, also, we all discount that stuff. We think of the leaders, the authority, the, the accountability. Those are the ones that God really appreciates. And I'm just back here pushing papers and I'm telling you both equally are good gifts from God. 
that we as a church ought to be, and I will tell you this, even though we are a religious community, we are going to always be an organized religious community, regardless of how you feel about that. Organized things are good things. That's what God communicates in this story. That's how it's presented. That's how it's presented throughout all of the Bible. So I have one more thing that I see here. One a bit more human because it is the humans in the story. Not only do I see authority and accountability, also systems and structure, but I also see people in place. It's one aspect that's alluded to throughout the entire story, but it's still missing from the story. And that's the people involved in the story. There's another book in the Bible called Chronicles. It's actually two books, first and second Chronicles. And it aligns with first and second Kings. The way that I understand it or often will try to explain it is that first and second Kings is the play by play. Chronicles is the color commentary. All right, that's how those two things go together. First and second Kings tells us exactly what happened. Chronicles tells us how they felt about it at the time. In Second Chronicles chapters 22 through 28, the same story about this chest and the re- rebuilding of the temple is found. In chapter 24, verse four, it says that Joash took it to heart, which means that he was passionate about this building project. The priests are described as lazy. In 24, verse 10, which even though it's not in our immediate text, this would be the key text of the whole story. It says, all the leaders and all the people rejoiced and they brought the tax and they put it in the chest until it was full. In other words, that they gave generously, joyfully and sacrificially. That that's what the people did because they had proper authority, accountability to that authority. They had a system and a structure to do it. Moses is mentioned over and over and over, not just as a historical figure, but as the person responsible for bringing them their culture, their laws, and their way of life. Moses, whenever Moses is mentioned in the Old Testament, is not just, like I said, this historical figure. It is a person who sort of, by God's grace, created the people called the Jews. People matter. Listen to me, sometimes we get so bogged down on those first two points. We are so worried about who's in charge and making sure that our leaders are held accountable, even though the whole time we rebuff accountability in our own lives. We will often say that we are people of the book. And by that, I don't mean the Bible, I mean the rule book. Even if it chews up people and burns out our leaders, we will follow the rules, the systems and the structure because we are so obsessed with who's in charge and the way that we are going to do things. And listen to me, people and place are the point. People are the point. Keep in mind that Joash is raised from infant to seven years old in the temple. It's not just a building. It's not just a structure. That was his home, his heart home. And so when he wanted to rebuild this place, it was a place that he held sentimentally not just a structure, a building that he would pass on his way to school or his way to the park. Not only do the people matter, but the place matters. That temple was special to Joash, but it was also special to the Jewish people. I've heard it explained that the temple would be like if we were to take our modern day mall, the courthouse and um, the church and shove it all together that this is the place where people went to do business. It's the place where people went to do legal or civil matters. It's also the place where they went to worship. It's the place where you saw everybody and you weekly, daily even, 
would worship together and see one another. It was a very special place. And that building was built in such a way at such a height that it would be a testimony, a lighthouse to all the community that there was a God and that God was with his people. That's what this temple meant. The place mattered. But we don't have a temple in that respect. We have what we call church buildings. This structure, the four walls that you are sitting in are like, what is it? Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, whatever walls that we are sitting in. And then the other building that we have over there that we call the student center and the building that we call the house. We can sort of see some of this in this, right? It's the place where we gather together as a church, sort of like a dinner table or a back porch that we come together and we laugh and we see one another and we drink coffee together that students gather and that they play and they learn more about Jesus and and children feel safe and parents feel that it is safe to leave their children in a place. Why? Because there are systems and there is structure that keeps them safe and there are authority that is held accountable to those places that we have this sort of structure in our midst. And it's a good thing. And our building, because of where it's located, can be a lighthouse to the community and can be this like, it's not just something that we think, it's something that we believe. We built a structure to sort of in a way communicate that there is a God and that God is with his people. That's what we communicate through having a building like this. And it's a beautiful, it's a good thing. But what we have to do is be very careful that it doesn't shift from being a tool like, Authority is a resource that it gives us. Structures is a resource that gives us. Buildings are a resource that God gives us. And turn from being a, a, a building as a tool to building as the object of our worship, right? Because buildings will change. This will not stand forever. One day this building will change. Steeples rise and they fall. Sometimes the back chairs get moved out of the sanctuary because the pastor's real mean and he hates everybody. And he moves them out and he puts them back. And one day he will move them out again. And then he will still not care if people are upset about that. Wall paint changes, carpet changes, things change. But the building stands as a place, a place where we gather together. It's not about the details of the structure. It's that God has blessed us with a structure. Furthermore, the people side of it, we need to be very careful about that as well. We can get so caught up in our current culture thinking of the people as, i.e., a crowd, like a big group of people. And it's not really about that. It's not about the crowd. It's about the individual. I'm so encouraged when I read this story and it mentions that there are artisans like stonecutters and carpenters, blacksmiths and coppersmiths. It could have very easily said the subcontractors, but it doesn't because each individual matters this priest and that specific kind of priest and the head priest and the, and the king's secretaries and the king, each individual matters. Just like all of these things matter and they come together. All of these things matter and they matter to God, authority and accountability, systems and structures, people and place. They matter because it is through these and by these things and arenas and avenues that we are able to accomplish what God created us to accomplish for the good of other people and the glory of God. You see, it's so very mundane. It's so very behind the curtain. It's so very just like the way that we do things, but we are tempted because it's not flashy, because it's not sexy, to be less than amazed by the gifts that God gives us that are very behind the scenes, the trellis on which the vine grows. 
It's a beautiful thing that God gave us. And not just to us system nerds, it should be to all of us. Can I just for a second though, quickly, step to the side of 2 Kings and show you something that 2 Baptist does that mirrors this story, exactly. We mirror this story exactly. We have something at this church in our accounting, in our finances, that we have very creatively called the building fund, all right? I know you're impressed with that name, but uh, that's the name of it. Maybe it had a name back in the day, but that's what we call it today, the building fund. We have our budget, and that's where people, when you, if you were to walk out and you were to go past those little uh, boxes back there and you were to put a check in there and it says $10 and it's just to the offering, that goes to what we call the, the undesignated gifts. You didn't tell us where to spend it, so it goes to there. And by faith and trust, you give that money, that offering to the church. You don't control it. Why? Because God has set up um, intentionally, God has set up authority with accountability and they have systems and they have structure. And I'm saying they, me, us, we have systems. We have, so we, we trust God with our offerings. That's how that works. But if you wanted to, above and beyond that, you could give specifically designated towards what we call the building fund. So it would be like somebody drops $10 in there and they said, you can spend this on whatever God leads us to spend it on. Or here's an extra $5 and I want that to go toward the building fund. Currently, Second Baptist has right at $2.4 million debt. $2.4 million debt to pay for the facilities that you are currently sitting in and that you walk around and park on when you are here. And I know that sounds like a ton of money, right? And it is, on all regards it is. But let me just put you to ease a little bit. Um, according to our finances and, and the way that you do things and stuff like that, it's, it's, it's manageable. It's more than manageable. It's a very healthy number. It's not bad at all. It's good. But here's what's even more encouraging about that. Our monthly payment is around $28,000. And the principle of that is 100% paid for by the building fund. It's not, we don't use any money from the undesignated offerings we use for the principal, we use the building fund money. Here's something else that's amazing about that. There's about a little under 1,200 people that participate in weekend worship services here at Second on one weekend. If you were to, you know, like how most people come to church like two to three times a month. So if you were to, I'm not, that's, that's a different sermon. I'll, I'll guilt you later on that. This is a different guilt. Um, I'm not judging that. But if you were to extrapolate that, it would be much higher. It'd be like 1,600 people. So 1,600, there are 72, 72 families that contribute to the building fund. That's it. Out of all of that, 72 contribute to that building fund. So I wanna be very clear. I don't know who the 72 are, all right? I don't know who they are. I don't know what you give. I don't know anything like that, but I don't think it's inappropriate for us just to pause for just a second and by applause, thank the 72 that are in our church. Would y'all show your appreciation for that 72? It could be you. I don't know if it's you, you know, you could have just given yourself an applause. And I, I think that that was hard earned and well earned. And we appreciate that. It's because of the 72. It's because of you, if you are in that 72. It's because of you that we are literally sitting in this space right now. That throughout the week, half a dozen Bible studies happen. That there's all sorts of ministry that happens in and through these structures 
because 72 families contribute to that fund. There was no way I could share this story and not tell y'all about a very specific, the building fund, which looks just like that. And also personally thank those of you who are contributing to that fund. If you want to give to the general offering or the, or the building fund or whatever, like that's great. If God leads you to do that, you can do that in the boxes with the envelope or you can do that online, mysecond.family slash give. You can do that if you want to. I just want to thank those who already are. Appreciate that. On Monday, I had a, uh, an exhausting day. You know, Mondays are like that. They're just exhausting. And I went home and I was tired, but I had all this stuff to do around the house. And the Arkansas weather was not helping, right? You just walk outside, you start sweating, you feel tired. It's funny, I can just like, I'm doing anything outside and I just keep saying, it's so hot. It is just so hot. I don't know why I just keep saying, I just keep repeating it over and over the whole time I'm mowing the yard. It's just so hot, you know? I think it's therapeutic for me in some way. But I had to mow the yard or I got to mow the yard, thankful for my yard. And, um, and I got to do all that kind of stuff. I had this other project where there's this gravel on one side of the house and I put it all in a wheelbarrow and I trucked it all the way around the other side of the house and I had to spread it out all over this certain area. And it took several trips. And if you've ever done anything with a wheelbarrow, it will exhaust you. You'll just be standing there. It is just so hot out here, you know? And that's how I was feeling. There's all kinds of projects, all kinds of things that I was doing, you know, dad jobs, husband jobs, that sort of stuff. And my oldest son comes out, he walks up to me and he says, dad, real excited, non-sweaty, showered from the inside air conditioning that I am providing for him. And uh, he says, dad, I got an idea. Here's what he said. Remember, I'm, I'm dying here. I'm literally half dead. He says, if you want to, when you're done and you get a drink and you get a shower, then if you want, we can take your truck to the Methodist church and I can practice driving. That's what he said. I was feeling extremely unappreciated at that moment, you know? But I thought to myself, that sounds fine, right? That's what we'll do, you know, because it's the dad. You, you just got to do stuff when you're a dad. And so I went in there, I cleaned up, I was leaving. Jack's like, where are you going? I said, I'm going to the Methodist church. We're going to practice driving. Uh, Methodist church is near our house and it's got, um, it's got all sorts of stuff that... Um, is not Baptist owned. So um, I'm, I'm fine practicing in there. We would replace it. Um, but yeah, we're practicing there and it's got, it's, got, it's got this stuff. It's got like this, the driveway makes this perfect like, uh, like fake road where I made him put on his blinker. He's looking both ways, all this kind of stuff. And he was practicing idling and accelerating. He even practiced backing into a certain spot. He got up to the little fake intersection, uh, intersection at one time and he sat there real good, right? Came to a complete stop. He wasn't sticking out or anything like that. Put on his blinker and he went. And as he got around the corner there a little bit, I said, did you see that? And he said, what? I said, did you see that pretend little old lady you just ran over? And uh, he says, what? And I said, yeah, and her little dog too. You ran over. You put your blinker on, but you have to check both ways, you know, before you pull out into this busy intersection. He says, dad, if you're going to teach me like this, I can't handle that. And I said, I'm being very calm. You're the one that ran over that little lady and her dog. You, know? you need to calm down. But the reason that I did that was because I love driving. I love it. I think driving is so fun. One time my youngest son says to me, dad, is driving the most fun thing? Is driving fun? And I said, son, it is the second most enjoyable thing you'll do your whole life. And he says, what's the first? Oh, you'll find out. <laughs> so I took my son, my oldest son, 
not the second, uh, took him and we're driving around this thing. And here's the deal. Even though I was tired and exhausted, here's why I did that. And here's the same reason you did that, right? Why did we do that? Because my son matters to me. He matters a lot to me. And I'm really looking forward to the day that he can drive. Not because of the parent jokes about like, he'll run the errands and he'll take his brothers up. That'll be fun too. I actually want him to drive because driving is fun. It's really fun. I want him to have his own little truck and drive around town. I want that. That'll be exciting. But he needs to know. He needs to know the rules. He needs to know what right of way means. He needs to know who the authority on the road is, who has the right to go. And when the police stop you, they stop you. That's a good thing. And it's a great thing. It's not to hurt you, but it is for your flourishing and it is for your good. Because when I realize and when I hold into balance the individual, the person, and the systems and the structure and the place and the people, when you hold those things into balance, they lead to flourishing and maturity and growth, not just his, but mine as well. These are good gifts from God. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.